0: All right, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up or turn them on to the book of Ruth. We are going to spend the next, uh, we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Ruth, kind of taking a chapter per week. Ruth is the eighth book in your Bible. If you have any trouble finding it, um, I, I've just personally been really looking forward to jumping into Ruth. It, it's, it's a book that God has used in my own life in many ways. My mom this week was was saying, so how are you going to go about teaching the first chapter of Ruth? And my response was, does it even matter? (laughs) I mean, you could just read this book and do nothing else and we would all walk away better for it. So I'm thankful for this book. I'm excited to dive in. Ruth, if you don't know, is a story that engages suffering and loss at probably the deepest possible levels. And yet it shows how God can work purpose and good and even joy into the darkest of stories. So this story from start to finish is a story about providence. It's a story about trust. It's a story about integrity. But at the end of the day, as we will see five weeks from now, ultimately it's a story about Jesus. So I don't take lightly uh, the fact Uh, that there is such deep suffering happening in this chapter and I don't take lightly the fact that I have not engaged in suffering at this level I've never wrestled with starvation I've I've never had to deal with the loss of a spouse or children I have never been called an outcast by my own people and all of this does happen in the first chapter some of you have dealt with those things And if you dealt with those things, you're you're going to get that much more out of our walk through Ruth. But all of us know what it's like to experience loss. Loss at different levels. If you've lived long enough, you're going to wonder where God is in certain suffering that you have. You're going to be tempted to grow bitter at God. And if you live long enough, you're gonna be tempted to walk away from him completely because this life is hard And it's easy to forget just how hard this broken world is. I mean, if we, if you're young enough, if you're healthy enough, we don't engage with the suffering on a daily basis that we see in this passage. Another reason that this book is special to me is because the first and probably only time I've ever actually sat under a pastor just walking through Ruth, uh, We started this chapter just a few days after a young woman in our church and a good friend took her life. And so it was this amazing show of God's providence that this chapter that we had planned seven months beforehand was being taught on that day. Because we as a church, we needed categories to understand suffering and grief in a way that not all of us had had to wrestle with up until that day so I'm thankful for the opportunity to walk through it because we know that at the end of the day no amount of technology no amount of medicine and certainly no amount of entertainment is going to fix or even cover up the pain and the loss that we will experience in this life this side of Jesus coming back so what we see in Ruth is a look at God's redemption and purpose in light of the suffering that we will experience. And in this first chapter specifically, I want to look at the onset of the suffering. I want to look at three different responses to suffering in our passage. And then lastly, I want to look at the way that God works in this passage through the suffering. So first, the onset of the suffering. You almost need to be an ancient Israelite to appreciate what all happens in just the first verse. (laughs) If you were an ancient Israelite, you would read the first few words and you would know that that the times are dark. (laughs) Just by the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. You would have had a heaviness on the chapter already, on the story already. You would have known that times are bleak. And I was trying to think of modern equivalents of this so maybe if, if we have a story that starts the day after black tuesday or the summer of 1961 or if none of that connects with you maybe a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away all, right, all of those phrases are meant to communicate darkness these are dark times and it prepares you for a pretty heavy story so what was the deal with the day days of the judges So the days of the judges roughly were from Joshua's death up until Israel's first king, Saul. So it was about 400 years. These were dark years. And our story is in that period of judges. And probably Ruth is in the beginning of this period because we know from Matthew that Boaz, who comes into the story next chapter, uh, Boaz was the son of Rahab. So we can put this probably at the beginning, more or less, of the period of the judges. And this period was marked by violent invasions, by apostate religion, by unchecked lawlessness, and by tribal war. And so you see through the period of Judges this cycle. Israel sins, God judges, and then God sends someone to bring Israel out of their misery and back to God. And those people that God brought about one after another, those are the people we call the Judges. All right, so let's pick up the story with that setting in mind. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons, and her husband. So here we find ourselves in the middle of one of these seasons of judgment. So this judgment came in the form of a famine, which is, the irony is not supposed to be missed that Bethlehem means um, house of bread. And so here you had the house of bread without any bread. And so what did Elimelech and his family decide to do? They decided to leave, to leave Bethlehem Again, which the early Israelite readers would have known right off the bat, this is bad. This isn't like losing your job and moving to Atlanta or Miami in hopes of a better prospect. In leaving Bethlehem, they were leaving God. They were leaving the place that God had chosen for them to live, the place that God had chosen to bless them, and they were disobeying God's clearly revealed will for the people of Israel. So they were taking matters into their own hands. And if it wasn't bad enough that they were leaving Bethlehem, they were leaving Judah, they were going to Moab. I mean, Moab was not a place they should have gone. The Israelites, they leave Moab. The last time they were in Moab, they leave there after the covenant ceremony in Deuteronomy. So going back to Moab is communicating a clear abandonment of the covenant promises that God had given them. And many of you remember how the Moabites started. The Moabites come from Lot's incest with his oldest daughter. So these people are not a part of the Israel, They're not a part of the covenant community. They're not a part of the people of God. And Elimelech and Naomi they go there, and they don't just live there and reside there. They marry their sons off to Moabite women, which was a huge. There was a huge. Uh, prohibition against that because the Israelites saw long ago that when you marry women of different religion it tends to take the hearts of the men with them too so this wasn't an ethnic prohibition it was a religious prohibition one that we maintain today all right so the average Israelite leader uh, reader excuse me would have seen in the first verse that things are unbelievably bad and then it gets worse. Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons die. And if you are a woman in that day and age with no husband and no sons and no people, you're destitute. I mean, this, this isn't just significant loss here. I mean, the, the, really, the main two options at this point are prostitution or a slow death. She has almost no hope if she has no male people in her life to take care of her. her. And so in just a few words, maybe half a verse, Naomi's entire life was ruined. And we can't for one second think that we're immune to the same thing happening to us today. I mean, because all of us are just one phone call, one phone call away from entirely altered life. One phone call from finding ourselves in a similar type of situation. And there really are two types of suffering in this life. You have the inevitable type of suffering that just comes from living in a fallen world. And then you have this other type of suffering where we bring it on ourselves by not trusting and following God. And so what Naomi's experiencing here is very much both. And I think it's interesting that her son's, or her husband's name was Elimelech. <laughs> because that name, Elimelech, means God is my king. And most certainly, God was not his king. <laughs> and it's interesting, if you, if you know the period of Judges well, you know that there's this, this refrain over and over again in the book of the Judges. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Elimelech, He's a poster child for the period of the judges because he had no king. He had no earthly king. He certainly did not have God as his king. And he was very much doing what was right in his own eyes and it cost his wife everything. And what follows in verses six and seven, it could feel like a blessing, maybe. But I think there's a lot of shame here too as she finds out that Bethlehem has food again. Verses six and seven. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So now she has shame on top of her pain. They didn't, was any of it worth it? coming over to Moab, because now back in Bethlehem, the food is returned. And she's got these two women with her that she needs to take care of, and all three of them begin the journey back to Judah. And here is where we see these three different women processing their suffering in three very different ways. Three responses to suffering. The first response we see in Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And her response is to walk away from God completely. Verses 8 through 14. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. Have you, you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may come, become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I, I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, My daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. So I get the feeling that these three women, they're walking from Moab to Judah. I don't know this for sure, but in my mind, they're crossing the border or arriving at the border, and the whole weight of what's going on. It really hits Naomi. She has these two women. She doesn't know how she's going to feed them. She doesn't even know that she's going to be able to be fed. She understands that that she has she has disobeyed. She understands that in many ways they're the product of her her disobedience and almost every scholar points this out. There was a racial stigma, regardless of what they believed, that was going to follow them into Judah. And so I, I was trying to think of how to understand this, this level of weight and shame and hurt. but the, the, the stuff that should be there and maybe the stuff that shouldn't be there. But everything that Naomi was feeling in this moment to understand why it was that she began to talk these women out of returning to the promised land with her. And I don't make this comparison lightly, but I have a friend, he's a little older than me and and he's adopted and he didn't know who his parents or his biological parents were for a long time, but he knew they were from two different races. You, You could see that just from looking at him and he was aware of that. And later in his life, he found out who his biological mother was and he decided he wanted to call her and just tell her two things. He wanted her to know that he's doing okay and he wanted to thank her for not aborting him. There's the only two things he wanted to say and he, he could be fine after that. So he, he called her, they had that conversation and then they had a few more conversations by phone and finally on the third or fourth conversation, he asked her, could I, could I come and meet you? And she said, no. She said, I only knew your father for one night and I could never bear the shame of everyone knowing what I did and who I did it with and one look at you would tell everyone and you can imagine how heavy that sat with him because what this woman was dealing with was Guilt over things she had really done wrong and then guilt over things that were culturally put on her because she lived, she was a white woman who lived in a racist society and they had built these kind of prohibitions between interracial dating and marriage. And so she dealt with the shame of having this one night relationship but then this other culturally appropriated racial aspect. And I think you can see this really clearly in verse 19. So the two of them, this is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. That's very important. And the women said, is this Naomi? So the whole town, they're not just stirred because of Naomi, they're stirred because of them, but they don't even speak to the second part of them. They only say, "Is this Naomi?" Ignoring this other person with another ethnicity and all the baggage in that culture that that would have brought with them. So I unpack this to say, "There's somewhere around the border, and all of this hits Naomi like a ton of bricks." And that's when she turns to the girl, the women. And she says, go back. I don't know what you're going to do here. I don't know how I'm going to provide for you. You don't understand everything that you're going to have to endure here. And so Orpah listens and she returns. And on the surface, who can blame her? I mean, she probably has family back in Moab. She probably does have a better opportunity of living and finding housing and eating back in Moab. But the real problem is that she knew about the one true God of Israel. She heard that he had visited Bethlehem, that his promises were in Bethlehem. And she chose Moab. This is a big deal. I mean, let's say that she goes back to Moab and she reconnects with family. She marries again. She has children and grandchildren. And let's say she lives a delightful rest of her life. By going back, she loses out on an eternal relationship with the one true God of the universe. In the words of one commentator, she walks off the pages of the Bible and back to her pagan gods. So as reasonable as this decision might seem, the cost is unimaginable. Orpah, like her dead father-in-law, Elimelech, When things got tough, she went walking. That's one way that we can respond to the suffering in our lives. The second example we have is Naomi. And Naomi, she responds in a very different way. She doesn't walk away from God. She goes to God, but she goes to God bitterly. Look at verses 19 19 through 21. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So I really struggled this week to try and figure out, so is, is Naomi's response a good response or is it a bad response? And the conclusion I came to actually on Saturday was that it's, it's neither good nor bad, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. It's incomplete. She goes to God, but, and she goes bitter. And you, know, it, it, you get this picture of Exodus 15, if you, if you know your Bible. When in Exodus 15, the Israelites are upset because the water that God has given them to drink is bitter tasting. They actually name that area Mara. Same, same word, which means bitter. So like her ancestors... Naomi is not happy with the way her life is turning out and she's bitter and she's going to God and she's telling him this. And so that part, I don't, I don't think we can say too much about and I'll explain that in a moment. But what she lacks, it seems like she lacks, is this ability to see that God can take the most bitter situations and turn them sweet. She lacks the ability to see that the God who visits with curses can also visit with blessings. Blessings. So here's what I want us to appreciate about Naomi's response before I criticize her in any way. First, John Piper says he would take Naomi's theology any day over much of the sentimental views of God that exist in evangelicalism today. So Naomi is unwaveringly unwaveringly sure of three things. God exists, God is sovereign, and God has afflicted her. Those are all true, and she embraces those. Second, we can appreciate that Naomi seems to be owning her own sin. She's not making excuses. She's not throwing Elimelech under the bus, which I think would be what most people would probably be tempted to do. She owns what she's done. And then thirdly, Naomi takes her suffering to the Lord. She doesn't bottle it up. She doesn't ignore it. In every way that Naomi seems to be processing the suffering she's experiencing, she's doing it in the context of the Lord. And I think that's important to see because we in, in modern evangelicalism can have this idea that, that if we're suffering as a Christian, we always just need to keep a smile on our face. You know, we, need to, we need to at least look like everything's okay because if we don't, then we're really just not trusting the Lord. But that isn't at all the pattern that we're given in Scripture. We are given lots of room to grieve when we hurt. I, I, mean, I think there's a very obvious similarity between Naomi and Job. I mean, Job, he lost his family, he lost his money, he lost his health. And what does he say? Does he say, well, when God closes one door, he'll open another? I mean, does he say, well, I just need to let go and let God does he say, Well, I, I know God never will give me more than more than I can handle, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna claim his promises and praise his name. No. Do you know what Job says? Cursed be the day that I was born. And do you know what God says in response to him? In all this, Job did not sin with his words. He wasn't cursing God. He was grieving appropriately. And so I think it's it's at least fair for us to give Naomi the same space. So obviously she's in a better spot than Elimelech and Orpah, but she's not in a great spot because she she believes all God has for her is affliction. All he's going to have for her is judgment and And when we believe that, when we sit in that space, it just exaggerates the hopelessness that we feel. And it prevents us from really believing that God can work in bad situations for both his glory and our good. That the bitterest of of scenarios can turn out sweet. That's how Naomi is processing her suffering. And then thirdly, we have Ruth. So Ruth doesn't run from God she doesn't go to God bitterly Ruth submits fully to God I'm gonna start at the end of verse 14 but Ruth clung to her and she said see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I love this part of the passage. Ruth is doubling and tripling down, both on her commitments to Naomi, but also Naomi's God. And it can sound weird, probably, to the modern ear that she's talking about you know having babies and marrying them off to... To Ruth, but really, all she's doing is referencing Deuteronomy 25, which in that day there was provision made for widows. If your husband died, you could marry his brother or some sort of kinsman or or uh, relative, so that you could be taken care of and the family name could continue. So Naomi is basically saying, "There's no hope for you. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There are no brothers. There will be no brothers, and I'm not aware of any." any kinsman back in my hometown that a exists and b would have you but that doesn't stop ruth in verse 16 and 17 we see this crescendo of commitment on the part of ruth towards naomi and ultimately god she says i will go with you i will be your people i will follow your god and where and i will die where you die So I've done a lot of weddings, very few funerals, but a lot of weddings, and I have never officiated a wedding that had vows anywhere near as significant as what we read here, because in all the the marriage vows, once your spouse dies, the vow's over, but what Ruth is vowing is that she will be faithful to this vow until her own death, so this vow is not one that will end under any circumstance, and and think with me just for a second, how much Ruth is communicating in these vows. I mean, on, at the most basic level, she's, she's committing to leaving her biological family forever. I mean, she will never probably see them again if she is faithful to these vows. Even after Naomi dies, remember her vow continues. So she can never return home and remain faithful to the vows that she's making. Second, If you think about it, she's pretty much vowing that she is never going to get married again. Because to to maintain this vow, she can only marry in the line of Naomi. And Naomi's already communicated to her, it doesn't look good for you to marry in my line. And then thirdly, she is leaving her culture and her customs and her language and her gods. I mean, leaving those things voluntarily in that day was tantamount to crazy. And... Ruth really is one of the first people we have in recorded history who voluntarily does this. This vow meant everything to Ruth. It would change everything about the future of her life. And I, I remember thinking about this years ago and thinking it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that Ruth would make this kind of vow with the data points that she has about our God. I mean, all the data points she has are fundamentally bad. You know, she, she knows that, that God brings famines and that God takes away those that you love. So why, why would she make this kind of commitment to that kind of God? But then I started thinking about it and realizing that this isn't her first data point on the God of the Bible. You know, maybe her dead husband used to tell her about this God and used to talk about his faithfulness and all the amazing things that he had done for his people. The the ways that he had parted the Red Sea and dried up the Jordan or brought down the, the walls of Jericho. And maybe she had categories for covenant blessings and curses and maybe all this was connecting to her. Maybe she had made a commitment to this God long before. Maybe this is the first time. I don't know. But it makes sense given her data points I think that she would double and triple down on the God of the Bible. My former pastor, J.D. Shaw, he also pointed out that that Ruth, in addition to all these things, she grew up in a culture where the gods required children to sacrifice. So she's going from a God that requires the death of a child to a God that would spare the death of a child she likely knew the story of Abraham and Isaac how God had intervened and provided another sacrifice so for me it doesn't look all that crazy that Ruth would say yes this is the god that i want to follow and in him i in him alone do i see hope john piper says in the end all that matters is that Ruth came to trust in Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experience. So what kind of faith do we have here in this example of Naomi? We have a faith that can see past the bitterness, that can see through the darkness. We have a faith that can endure any trial, any setback, any suffering, and any sin And I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that Ruth is one of the best examples of faith in all of the Bible because she's able to trust God when it hurts the most. And she knows she needs God the most when it hurts. So how do we respond to trials in our life? Do we run from God? Are we bitter towards God? Or like Ruth? Do we go to God and submit to him fully? Because we will have trials. You know, Some of us are enduring trials of our own causing, like Naomi. When some of us are enduring trials that are just inevitable because we live in a, in a fallen world like Ruth. Psalm 34 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So there will be trials, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And I think this is what Ruth believed at her core. So to help us answer this question, how will we respond to the trials in our life? I want to finish by very briefly looking at God's work in the midst of the suffering. So this takes us to the final line in the first chapter, verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of moab and they came to bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest so you get the feeling here i don't even if you've never even read this book before i think you get the feeling that things are just about to turn around you have the feeling that maybe god's going to use the bitterness to produce something sweet and i am going to resist every temptation that i have in me to jump past chapter 1 right now and just look at the ways that god is providing for for his people in the midst of suffering just in chapter one first we see that Naomi has been called home now I don't mean called home like we use it today she didn't die she's being called home but that home is more than just a home that place Bethlehem that's where her people are and that's where her blessing is and fundamentally that's where her God is so she has sinned She's betrayed God, she's run from him And he's doing everything to pursue her And to call her back He doesn't owe her anything But he pursues her faithfully And there have to be some people in this room today Who you're enduring affliction And this affliction is what the author of Hebrews Would call godly discipline God pursues those he loves And he will not stop until all of his people are brought home So that's the first way that we see God working. Secondly, we see that God does this in the darkest of times. I mean, this is the period of judges. So it doesn't matter how bleak the situation, how dark the surrounding culture, how confusing your scenario. God is not limited by any of it. He can work in the darkest of times. And we see him doing that in chapter one. And then thirdly, we see Ruth, who comes from a different people, made Naomi's people. And I could do a whole sermon just on this, but Ruth has given a new people. She's given a new citizenship. Even if they don't give her the dignity that she she deserves, in chapter one, we are going to see that God not only gives her a new people, but provides for her in an amazing way through these people. So, in a time when really, if you think about it, the foundations of our faith were just. Being constructed. Ruth has all the data she knows. She needs to be able to process the most significant kinds of grief and suffering. And, you know, she knows that she's leaving a God that requires the sacrifice of children to a God that doesn't. But what she doesn't know is she's going to a God who would go so much farther, who would give his only son that we might be brought into the kingdom. So Ruth has all the information she needs with much less information than any of us have. So we're without any kind of excuse. Those are the three ways God is working in the suffering and it leaves all of us with one very logical question. Do you want this God to be your God? You could be Naomi metaphorically returning home after being gone for a long time, or you could be Ruth, metaphorically going home for the first time, but the question is the same for everyone. Do we want this God to be our God? And the answer to that question is going to be clearest in our suffering. And if you're here today and you are hurting, there is nothing I can say that will be more helpful And go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and you're hurting. Because there's no one in this room who can understand suffering more. There's no one in your life that's acquainted with grief more. But Jesus is. And on top of that, Jesus loves you and he cares about you. None of the other gods are going to care about you. Money doesn't care about you. Vacation doesn't care about you. Entertainment doesn't care about you. Your 401k does not care about you. They don't care about you any more than the Moabite gods. But Jesus does. And he wants us to run to him in the hardest and the toughest of times. And I know just by virtue of you being in this room today and hearing this message, God is calling you, every one of you, to come home, to come to him, to lean into him and trust him with the hardest and the most confusing situations that you have in your life. And he promises that there is hope, that he will work in those sufferings as we're going to see over the next few weeks. And that one day he is coming back and Jesus is establishing his kingdom and all the pain and the strife and the suffering that we experience will be gone forever. We won't even cry anymore. That's the biblical way to understand suffering. And how we process suffering. But it's one thing to say it. And another thing to believe it. So I want to finish. By praying. That all of us would believe it. Let's pray. God we. In this room. And I would go so far as to say. Above most churches even in this community. We know the right answers. But having the right answers. Doesn't always solve the problem. The information has to sink from our head to our hearts. And I pray that you would make that happen. That you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would bring this truth to the depths of who we are. That you are our only hope. That you would help us to see all the things that we run to for comfort or numbness in light of our suffering. And that you would open our eyes to you who we really need the most. And so we ask that that would be true today and that we would be sent out from here and we would believe that truth, that we would exude the truth of who you are and the gospel you have and that we would be a light in an increasingly dark city. We thank you, we love you, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, amen.